Welcome to Podcast Ed, the podcast of reimaginedonline.org, covering the stories in the new world of public education. On this episode, Step Up for Students President Doug Tuthill sits down with the 11th United States Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. The two discuss her new book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child, now available everywhere books are sold. They also discuss how actualizing education freedom for more families will create a healthier public education system, education savings accounts, for confirmation hearings, and more. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the episode. So I'm excited today to have our Secretary Betsy DeVos with us on our Reimagined podcast. Betsy has a new book out called Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. So welcome, Betsy. Thanks so much, Doug. Great to be with you. Thank you. So uh, first I want to ask, why did you decide to write the book? Well, I certainly did not set out to write the book but or, or any kind of a book, but um when I concluded my service in Washington and reflected on the time there and what we had just navigated through, uh, you know, the last two years have been really tough for kids in any kind of educational setting. And um, I, I realized that for many families, it was really the first time they were thinking seriously about the you know the place that their child has gone to school or their children have gone to school and how it served them during the pandemic and i i thought it was an important moment to capture some of those um experiences and reflections but also talk about the 30 plus years that i've been advocating for parents to have the ability to control their kids education and uh, and the necessity the, the necessity for that being really revealed the last couple of years. So Betsy, why did you title the book Hostages No More? Well, I admit it's a pretty provocative title. <laughs> it importantly, it is a reference to a quote made by Horace Mann, commonly known to be the founder of our education system. And uh, about 175 years ago, he said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. And I think, uh, again, the last couple of years has really laid bare some of the issues and some of the ways in which kids have been held hostage to a system that for too many of them is simply not working. Yeah. So... The whole concept of education freedom is a is core to the book, obviously. Um, define that for for our listeners. How, when you when you use the term education freedom, what do you mean? I know it's in the book, but I want I want people to hear from you. Sure. So for many years, I and and many others have talked about the need for school choice. And a couple of years ago, I really realized that it it's a term that doesn't fully describe the vision that I have for K- kids K-12 education experience in the future. And that is really the notion that uh, the resources that are already dedicated to every child across the country, and on average, that's about $15,000 a year um, for kids in, in their K-12 years. Uh, the notion that those resources should go to the control of the families to direct 
where and how their kids receive education. And in some cases, it means staying in the school to which they're assigned because it's working really well for them. In other cases, it means picking a school uh, in the neighborhood or somewhere else in the community that you think would work better for your child. In other cases, it could be customizing your kid's education and buying educational services and classes from a variety of sources. And, um, and we've seen real creativity around this notion of education experience out of necessity the last couple of years. And we need to continue to um, encourage that and support that and really provide for full education freedom that is going to allow for every child to get their K-12 education learning in ways that is gonna work for them. So Beth, you talk a little bit more about what that would look like. I mean, how, how do you actualize the whole notion of greater education freedom? I mean, this is a massive institution. As you said, 1852, I think, was the first uh, mandatory school attendance law. So um, it's been in place for, like you said, 175 years. How do you begin to transform that system, which, as you said in your book, is a top-down sort of industrial model of one-size-fits-all assembly line? How do you begin to transform that into one organized around your concept of educational freedom? Well, I would just say that a state like Florida has gone a long way toward doing just that. Uh, the fact that in many districts, well more than half of the kids today are choosing schools other than, or educations other than their assigned school is, is evidence of uh, a move in that direction. And other states are doing similar things uh, the scale is not yet big enough to say there's a full education freedom environment, but we have glimpses of what that could look like. And uh, now is a time for policymakers to really ca capture this momentum and this, uh, this feeling that families have had uh, of helplessness the last couple of years in many cases, and to give them the, uh, the tools and the power to uh, select something different if that's what would be right for their kids. And I would contend that when uh, the resources are attached to each child, I contend that within a few years of true education freedom for to scale for as many uh, folks in the in the, in the state like Florida or in in the country that could uh, avail themselves of that, we would begin to see different educational models or solutions than we've even begun to dream of, because entrepreneurial innovative, creative people in this country would take things that they've been thinking about or wanting to try and introduce them in a way that would be accessible to anyone who wanted to, to go those different directions. Yeah, and you have a lot of great examples in your book about that. I was really impressed that you took the time in the book to highlight some of the really cool innovations that go on around the country. So I hope when people had a chance to read the book, that they'll focus on that because I was part of it. I really, I really enjoyed that. So I, I appreciate you doing that. There was a, there was a little exchange in the book, um, not literally exchange, but you were sort of talking to Howard Fuller for a moment. <laughs> Howard Fuller, of course, being one of the legends of the education choice movement, and um, I know a good friend of yours for over the years. And you basically suggested in the book that um, uh, you and Howard and a lot of others have been champions for the whole concept of social justice. And in the book, you you implied that um, social justice and education freedom go hand in hand. 
and these are my words, not yours, but it, 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 it was sort of like, as public education market becomes more effective and more efficient, that in fact is the very best way to create greater equality of opportunity and greater social justice. Elaborate on that a little bit more. I mean, how oftentimes people in the social justice movement are sort of hostile towards markets. But I had the sense in that in that line in the book, and I was I was struck by it that you were saying, no, 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 these aren't antithetical concepts. They actually fit together. And it's through a more functional market that you actually can actually achieve a greater social justice. Talk a little bit more about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think those two concepts are very compatible in the uh, in this in the situation of, of education because um, if I'm if I'm a single mom in uh, an urban center and my child is going to the school to which uh, he or she is zoned or assigned and uh, uh, th that my child is simply not doing well and is uh, getting very discouraged. Um, I'm seeing, you know, daily uh, a less and less fire in the eye about even the concept of learning. If I have no other opportunity to make a different choice and 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 have my child go somewhere else to try to stoke that creativity and that curiosity, um, that is unjust in my view and. Um, and in a, a an education freedom environment where you would have many different providers coming to try to uh, satisfy the needs of that child and to stoke that curiosity, um, the ones that are going to do so well are going to do well in the marketplace. And the ones that simply don't take care of kids and, and uh, respond to their needs are not going to do well. And that's that's as it should be, in my view. Uh, we should not continually perpetuate uh, schools or learning environments that simply aren't helping kids succeed and learn and achieve. Betsy, this seems to make common sense, at least to me. <laughs> um, why is there so much hostility to the concept of, of freedom in education? I mean, we're a democracy where we were founded you know, as, as a country of people seeking freedom, you know, uh, religious freedom and political freedom and economic freedom. That's the sort of in our DNA as a country. Why is there so much hostility in this particular aspect of our lives, public education? Why is there so much hostility towards freedom in public education? Starting at one point, one level, um, many uh, folks in you know my uh, age group and, and somewhat younger and somewhat older have a nostalgia for what their experience was, which is very different than many kids' experiences today. Um, so start with that base level. And then, um, and then we have seen the continued strengthening of the, uh, the status quo, the defenders of the status quo, starting at the top with what I refer to as school unions rather than teacher unions, and then all of their allies. I mean, organizations that are allied to protect and defend, and in many cases, expand uh, adult interests, they're not focused on children. children. I had to work with many of them or had to deal with many of them while in Washington and have previously in uh, in state situations. And, you know, they they're doing their jobs well, frankly. They have a vested interest in roles for themselves, but that's in many cases not at all aligned with what's best for children. 
And so that power that has continued to be um, supported by elected leadership that continues to feed that, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. I, I talk about it at some length in the book. And um, I think it's, you know, it's not a pleasant thing to talk about, but it is, I believe, the reality. And it's the biggest resistance to doing what's right uh, and changing policies to support families and kids and their interests. You've obviously been a leader in, in the struggle against that hostility. How do we succeed against that? I mean, as you said, there's a lot of economic and political interest into the status quo, even though that status quo is, is underserving lots of children in tragic ways. A lot of people are very tied to that system. And of course, there's a, a local school in every community with teachers who are part of their teachers union. So that's a massive political force that you're dealing with, a lot of economic and political interests around the status quo. How do we win this fight, uh, Betsy? Well, again, I think uh, we are at a really important moment right now where many, many families have and, and you know, grandparents and neighbors and friends have really seen up close in personal ways how the system has not served children well in the last two years. And I think that there's, I think that there's a, uh, a, you know, a drive and a momentum like we haven't seen before to change that dynamic and to, um, to take, take some of the power, to take the power back and put it where it should be with the family. Uh, because education should be about individual children and their futures and how and where they get that education should be driven by the family. And um, I think that this is, you know, this is really the time to uh, appeal to policymakers. And importantly, you know, we have elections coming up and the, who we elect matters for the implementation of policies that are going to support this notion that families should be able to direct and and choose what where their children learn and how they learn and and so i think you know the time is right now it has it has ripened in such a way that i think we have the opportunity to really make significant changes that will benefit kids in their future you made the case in in your book and i i found that persuasive and we've seen this a lot in florida which is a lot of teachers also benefit from education freedom. And we talk a lot about kids, but a lot of teachers feel liberated uh, when they're able to be entrepreneurial and do their own thing. Talk about this from the teacher perspective. I mean, talk about how teachers would benefit and what you've seen around the country, because you've done a lot of visiting, how teachers benefit when there's more freedom in, in public education. Well, absolutely. I think education freedom would be the greatest thing for teachers because think about it. In an environment where families can choose where their child gets educated, a great teacher becomes the most important part of that equation. And, you know, we've seen some creativity for teachers and on behalf, you know, by teachers again the last couple of years in communities where families had the resources to come together with maybe several other families and hire a really great teacher to come and work with their children in person when they were locked out of schools. And 
many teachers have found, you know, this is this really works for me. And uh, being able to find that niche and that environment that does work for each each teacher is is a great opportunity. You know, while I was at the department, I had a couple of roundtable um, conversations with teachers who had been teachers of the year in their states or their districts. And then after their you know year's victory lap had gone back to teaching and then a few months later had quit. And I wanted to understand why. And um, hearing from them, almost to a person, it was essentially that they got the message, you had your moment in the sun, and now it's time to get back to, you know, the real work here. And uh, and, and basically, we're told to sort of re, refit back into the box and not really capitalize or or leverage the, those you know the, the fact that this teacher had had been recognized as extraordinary instead of developing an opportunity for that those teachers to uh, help mentor and or uh, train up young new teachers or improve help other teachers that were struggling improve you know they were basically just told okay you've had your day and now go back to what you did before. And I think that's really really discouraging for really great outstanding yeah. teachers. There have to be opportunities for them to become their best and everything they can be. And an environment of education freedom would provide them that opportunity in multiple different environments. So in the book, you talked about the whole concept of education savings accounts. And with uh, ESA sort of being the next generation of, of the scholarship programs. Um, talk a little about what are ESAs and how might those actually contribute to what you just talked about, which is providing more opportunities for teachers because now families have way more flexibility with their spending dollars. So micro schools, homeschool co-ops, after school tutoring programs. Talk a little about how ESAs, why you think that's the next generation and how that might contribute to greater education freedom. Sure. Sure. So, you know, we did we have seen many, uh, many families uh, adopt homeschooling um, approaches for their kids the last couple of years or a micro school approach. Well, this would allow for families to identify with perhaps a small group of other families, a, a really great teacher that they'd like to hire to come and staff their little micro school or homeschool or whatever they'd like to call it. Um, I also, you know, talk about just the different kinds of environments that could be attractive to teachers. And uh, I'm familiar with a school in West Michigan where I live. Some friends of mine, their grandchildren go to this school. It, and, and being from Michigan, I will remind, uh, you know, Floridians that Michigan's cold in the winter. Very <laughs> but these kids go to school year round outside. And teachers are outside with them year round and they are thriving. There, there is such demand for the um, opportunity to access this school. They're, you know, the school's adding another section per grade every year. And, um, and, and I just mentioned that as one example of really kind of thinking out of the box about what this could look like. And for teachers for whom, you know, the outdoors and uh, that environment is very attractive, that would be a really unique and fun way to do it. Well, that's amazing. I, I'm not sure as a native Floridian, the whole winter thing in Michigan is attractive to me, but um, well, 
I know. <laughs> Everybody's choices, right? Yeah, 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 sure. So um, let's have a little fun here. Um, I know the little visioning process. Let's assume that it's 2040 and you've had quite a bit of success promoting the whole concept of education freedom and things are moving along pretty well. Paint a picture for, for our, our audience. What's your ideal vision of what 2040 looks like if we've had a lot of success expanding education freedom? Sort of describe what that might look like to for families and for kids and for teachers. Because you've seen a lot of innovation, sort of draw the line out. What, what's that going to look like? Well, I think for um, for kids, uh, let's say in a, a suburban or an urban area, uh, they have uh, probably 10x the kind the numbers of choices and approaches to uh, gaining their education, their K-12 year learning, as they do today. And, um, and they can customize uh, how they do that to the extent they want to. For those who want to stick with a more traditional, uh, you know, agrarian calendar model where they've got the full summer off, they have the op option to do that. But for those who see the benefit of going year round and having more regular, longer breaks during the school year, they can do that. For, um, for those who want to take uh, a few of their classes at one particular building or, or school, they can do that and maybe uh, take a class or two virtually, uh, maybe another class at uh, the local community college or uh, university. And um, and perhaps they have a, a mom or a dad who is particularly adept in a, a subject area that wants they want to learn with uh, another area. So I mean, really, the the sky is the limit for what could be, and um, and it, it's it's you know difficult to predict with any degree of uh, of ac you know accuracy what we what exactly would it look it would look like. But I know it would look very different. It would look so much better and it would be so much more fun for so many kids who are for who today um dread going to school you know my uh my grandchildren that are of school age are in a school that uh is very student driven and it's uh mastery based and um you know they're young but they cannot wait to go to school every day and if they have to miss a day for something they are really upset about it okay. I, want, I want that same yeah. feeling and that same opportunity for every kid no matter where they live no matter their circumstances and i know that i know that we can get there because we have so many creative people that would unleash around that opportunity in our country and uh, and we've had so many uh, good little experiments around this but not a real opportunity to bring it more broadly. And so I, I have every confidence that, that a child's experience of their learning would be so much more engaging and their curiosity would continue to be fired, fired the whole time. You use the word customization a lot in your book. Um, is that sort of what we're talking about, an environment where every child is blessed to have a customized education that best meets his or her needs? Is that really what we're talking about? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, that, that can look different for every child. And, um, it, you know, it's based on families' needs and, and, uh, and, and what they're looking for and what that, what that child, you know, what will really pique that child's interest and engage that child. And I think today about how 
um, how, how poorly we do with really helping kids understand at, a, at an early age the wide range of career opportunities and options that they have. We, we are so focused on school for school's sake and less focused on what are we going to do when we become adults? And I think there's, uh, there's great opportunity to uh, weave that into learning in a way that we just haven't done. And including uh, apprenticeships starting at earlier ages, you know, just learning alongside someone, whether you're able to really do the job yet or not, shadowing and then learn, you know, earn and learn. Um, there's so many different ways that kids can uh, gain the, the knowledge and the skills they need but we've been fixated on this one particular approach and system for you know well, well over a century. So I wanna ask you a, a personal question, a few personal questions um, that I've always just, I've thought a lot about over the years watching you, watching you. Um, you are a person who, you have this enormous amount of caring. I think this comes out of you. I mean, you, you've got this sort of loving grandmother thing going where, you, you know, you care deeply. Um, you do have that small town, Michigan kind of, you know, community feel. Um, and it's a beautiful thing and it comes through so clearly, you know, you care deeply about children, you care about fairness. You say in the book that, you know, you're, you're, you've been blessed, you really have, and, and you, you feel an obligation to give back. And, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. But you're also a very tough woman, and um, you got treated incredibly unfairly uh, during your confirmation process and, and while you were secretary. The one part of the book, actually, that's you know, I had to put down was I, I was reading about that. I, I was I got emotional because I saw what was happening to you. I knew what kind of person you are, and I just the unfairness of that was just horrific. And it was like it was like the the Salem witch trials. You know, they want they wanted to burn you at the stake. I mean, people were crazy. They they lost their minds. How did you survive that? How do you how do you maintain your your civility and your and your your idealism? How do you avoid not becoming cynical and and I mean, I'm just so amazed that you came through that process. You, you were betrayed by some longtime friends. I mean, Cory Booker. Uh, you know, turn his back on you in ways that that was um, is hard to watch. I mean, what is it about your background and about who you are that allowed you to survive that? I mean, I, I just was I'm amazed that you came through that with your uh, with your idealism and your and your passion intact. How'd you do that? Well, I can't I can't take credit for that personally. I, I think, um, you know, my faith has uh, really um, made me reliant on uh, knowing that I'm not in charge and in control. I'm here to serve and to do what I'm called to do. And um, when I when facing opposition, I I, I really do um, consciously try to put myself in the other person's place and and look at it from their perspective and know that uh, I, I I just hope that by my demeanor and by ultimately persuasion of the arguments at some point their minds may also change uh i know that you know i, I also am practical and know that you know in most cases or many cases that won't happen but i i just i want to be i am i'm consciously trying to be um 
in that posture that uh, I, I have to try to understand things from their perspective and try to persuade them. Well, you turned the other cheek so many times, I'm surprised you didn't have a whiplash, but I just want to tell you that your ability to survive that with so much class is really inspiring. And I just um, want to thank you for that. That was just, you're an amazing human being and, and to go through all the things you went through and come out of it with that attitude. And um, and and uh, it was just a beautiful thing to watch. It was it was hard to watch, but I was so proud of you and, and tried to learn from you because all of us in public life, you know, we, we get some of that. You got a thousand times more than anybody else did, but you you handed it with amazing amount of class, and I just wanted to to thank you for that and tell you it was inspiring. And um, I'll never be able to live that kind of, I'll never be able to live up to that. But I just want to tell you how 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 much I learned from you and how much I'm inspired by how you handled that. So well, thank you, thank you so much. So I want to talk about moving forward. Um, what's next for you? I mean, how do you how do you plan to play this out? Um, I know you used to be part of the AFC board. I don't think you are anymore. Are you going to start your own organization? Are you going to work with existing organizations? I mean, what's your what's your plan moving forward? I mean, I know you're in the middle of a book situation now, but after that, right. I mean, what are you thinking? Well, um, I've never been one for a lot of advanced planning, but I know <laughs> this. My passion for uh, education freedom and for helping kids has not waned one little bit. And I'm going to just be open to the best way I can serve and continue to serve that mission and that passion. And uh, and I'm going to be helping wherever I can to ensure that policies are adopted that will move us uh, rapidly to a full education freedom environment. Um, and so however that looks, I will be working with uh, all individuals involved with that to try to accomplish that. And I'm, I'm continuing to work with my good friends at AFC and elsewhere but to, you know, to make sure that we're taking advantage of this uh, this time in, in space to really advance those policies. Well, I um, I'm excited to see you continue to do the work and you've always been a great friend of ours in Florida. And uh, I always have an opening on the board of directors that step up. So if you ever uh, want to come down and uh, you got a place down here in Florida. So uh, if you ever want to come down and, and, and uh, be part of that step up, we'd love to have you. Um, I just want to let our listeners remind them that um, the book is out. Uh, by the time this podcast runs, I think the book will be out June 21st. I think uh, parents are going to love it. Uh, educators are going to love it. People who are interested in public education, uh, there's a lot to learn from this. And so I would encourage everybody to, to get a copy of, of Betsy's new book, Hostages No More. We will be doing a book study inside Step Up. So for our employees, know that we're going to be reading the book and talking about it. And so this is a great contribution to the to the movement and to the struggle for equal opportunity for education freedom. And I want to thank you, Betsy, for, for taking the time to write the book and for promoting it and for taking the time to, to talk to us today. Well, Doug, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for your great leadership and step up uh, everything that Step Up does to serve kids. Um, I uh, am in such great admiration of you and everything that you're doing on behalf of those kids and their families and uh, look forward to continuing to work with you. 